Welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Lisanne de Moor and I'm the host of this episode. Today I'm joined by a leading researcher in the field of personality, personality pathology, and other forms of psychopathology. Aidan Wright is an associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh. In this podcast, we will talk more about his perspective on personality and how it could and perhaps should be studied. Welcome, Aidan, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Before we go to the more complex questions, maybe you can start out by telling me a bit about yourself and your research interests. Sure. As you mentioned, I'm currently an associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and I've been there since January of 2014, so just seven years now. Before that, I completed a postdoc at the University of Buffalo with Len Sims, and I also did my clinical internship at Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic here in the University of Pittsburgh. And I got my PhD at Penn State University with Aaron Pincus. I often describe myself as a clinically trained personality psychologist because although my degree is in clinical psychology, my perspective on the field is very much informed by personality psychology or basic personality science. So. I'm a little bit of an odd duck in that way, and I tend to sit in between the two fields. And that has, has a big influence on how I think about both personality and clinical psych, clinical phenomena like psychopathology and, and mental disorders. Um, I, I know you also do a lot of more personalized uh, psychopathology work. Can you maybe start out by telling me a little bit about that? Like, what does it entail, broadly speaking? Again, this is the type of thing that has been informed by basic personality research. So if you go back a long time to the, to the early days and of basic personality where they were asking questions, you know, what does it take to know a person? One of the trajectories that the field took that has become the predominant trajectory is the nomothetic approach. And the nomothetic approach is an effort to understand the group or understand what is common about individuals. But there was also effort to understand what is unique about individuals um, or understand the individual as their own unique entity. For the listeners who may not be familiar, when we're talking about personalized or what are also called ideographic models, we're talking about collecting a large amount of intensive longitudinal data, usually using something like ambulatory assessment in one's own natural environment, like daily diaries or via smartphones, enough data that you can build a statistical model of the individual as their own multidimensional system ideally capturing all of their rich complexity. And this other trajectory that hasn't seen a lot of research traditionally, in part because of the difficulty of doing the research with certain technological limitations that have been rapidly falling away, um, actually fits the clinical perspective very well. Because as a clinical psychologist, when you work clinically anyway, you work within a single individual. And your goal is to understand that individual as their own unit and work within that system to try and change it. So from that perspective, um, it seemed very compelling as an approach to take to understand individuals' personalities, because oftentimes that's an, a very important context in which to implement a clinical intervention. So that coupled with having gone to graduate school in a place where there were people doing deep thinking about how we would methodologically understand and study individuals um, as individuals and not try to just understand them 
in relative terms, where much of the field is has been you know based on understanding individuals as as they differ from each other, but also the focus being on the individual as their own contained system, that informed my thinking as well and uh, led me down this path. And since then, uh, one branch of my work has been focused on trying to leverage those methods to start studying both basic and clinical phenomena of individuals and try to figure out how best to understand individuals as their own systems. So I think maybe you already partly answered my question, um, but I'm just going to pose it as a very uh, yes or no kind of question anyway. Okay. Uh, So I I think you mentioned mostly processes that happen within individuals, uh, but you also mentioned that there can be differences between people, so individual differences. And would you say that you are interested in in studying the processes that happen within individuals or rather the differences that are existing between individuals? I think both are important. I know you said this was a yes or no question, but I have some thoughts uh, to, to try and better characterize my answer. I think both are important and there are certain processes within individuals that are going to be very difficult to understand without understanding them relative to other individuals. So many of the constructs and concepts that we deal with in personality and clinical psychology don't have a firm reference point. There's no sort of absolute that you have uh, when you're studying other things. So for instance, if you were studying certain physical phenomena and the physical sciences, you may be able to deal with an absolute zero or uh, the absence of something or a certain amount of something, everything is on a perfect scale. But in personality and clinical phenomena, we're often dealing with relative concepts. And so is someone more or less extroverted? We don't know what absolute zero is for extroversion or introversion or agreeableness or any other concept that we deal with. And so often we're taking our cue from how someone relates uh, or how their processes are relative to other individuals. That also is better respects things like context and culture that where absolute values and what is tolerated or expected tend to shift. And so what's okay in one some context um, tends to be not okay in others. And what tends to be extreme in some context tends to be very moderate in others. So I, I think that these types of relative comparisons come with the, the territory. Mm-hmm. And so even if we're trying to understand an individual, oftentimes we don't know whether their within-person processes are, uh, you know, how to really understand those unless we can understand how that individual compares with others in their particular context. So basically you're saying we need the context or we need the comparison to other people to understand what the level of some trait or another means within as like one individual? Currently, yes. I don't know <laughs> if that might change at some point. Um, and I don't know whether that would change and we, that we would be able to understand um, personality in, in such concrete and absolute ways that we would be able to have an absolute zero of personality. That doesn't sound like a fun person to hang out with. Um, but Uh, For right now, I think, yeah, the relative context is important. You just mentioned that um, to understand whether something is extreme or not extreme, um, we would need the context. Can you maybe give like an an example of this, of what this uh, would look like applied? To use an example that I recently used in a paper and that is very poignant to me right now is the 
three and a half year olds tend to be very imperious and demanding and self-centered and egotistical. And you can see it come out at the, the dinner table most nights. So that context there of the individual being three and a half years old and at the dinner table and negotiating whether they're going to eat their broccoli or not tends to be a particular context and their behavior is tolerated in that context. But if you had the same, if it was a 35 year old who was behaving in the same way, this would be quite extreme, intolerable, and they wouldn't be viewed with as much grace as the three and a half year old is perhaps. Okay, very clear example. Thank you. <laughs> it's a little bit extreme, but but yeah. I think it drives home the point. So yeah, you, you described these two levels, and I think you also described how they can be sort of relate, how they can relate to each other. Do you also think that these can be connected, these two levels? This is very challenging to do, and I think and I think that this is actually what I perceive as the field's biggest challenge right now. And what seems to me to be what most cutting edge personality scientists are thinking about now. How do we bridge the within person to the between person or the individual to to the group? And as it turns out, it's hard work. So a lot of the the most forward thinking work on this is trying to come up with big grand theories of personality that go from you know micro processes to up all the way up to big uh, broad traits that have been identified with psychometric approaches over the past hundred years they also tend to try and build in how we go from micro processes in the moment to developmental trajectories and by necessity there's a lot of speculation and a lot and it's very complex there's very few data sets that would allow us to look at the whole system at one time. And by necessity, it's sort of one of the big questions. And so it's going to be slow to, to come by. And I think we're going to fill in individual pieces a little bit at a time. Part of the reason we find ourselves here is, uh, you know, going back to something I mentioned earlier is that, you know, personality psychology has done an excellent job focusing on certain issues, but those issues were in somewhat defined, in some ways defined by what was available to the field. So a lot of that has focused on in the past hundred years or so, the what of personality, focusing on things like personality structure, working through things like basic questions of how should we measure it, and ultimately arriving at what some people might say the big five is sort of the predominant model. But I think you know, you could say more ecumenically a big few model where there's somewhere between three to six traits that tend to organize broad domains of individual functioning well. So, and that's a, a tremendous achievement. There are a few other areas in psychology that have such an important achievement and that, that has worked so thoroughly and, and methodically on such a focused question. But by by now, it's clear that these are descriptive systems and not explanatory systems. And I think to be able to understand what gives rise to those is going to involve shifting from a descriptive framework to a, a an explanatory framework. And this work is happening. And of course, there was some of it going on throughout the past century or so. But I think it's really heating up now and people are, are coming at it from different ways. But one thing that means doing is giving up the notion of personality traits as something that are real and fixed as if there will be a, a gene for neuroticism or a, a location in the brain for neuroticism or even a, 
particular environment that gives rise to neuroticism. And instead, these are abstractions that are useful for us to talk about. But in the other sense, we need to understand them as placeholders and uh, emergent phenomena. And what we care about are what is underlying those phenomena. And we need to get to that level of understanding if we if we hope to really move forward. I think it's very interesting what you're saying, because I, I feel like um, most of what you just said is more on the conceptual level. So what does it mean? Uh, maybe also on the process level. So how do these things happen? And, and you also mentioned that we started out in the personality field with a lot of questions about what's going on and how can we measure it. And I feel like that's also what's going on with the, um, the connection of the two levels. So I feel like now we've gotten like quite far methodologically speaking, um, like we know how we can or not, that we cannot translate uh, things from one level to the other um, yeah. when we're talking about statistics. But really, the question is also more conceptual. And I, I, I think you described this very well. Yeah. One of my favorite papers out there was by Linda Collins in 2006. She wrote had a, a paper in the Annual Review of Psychology. And in there, she lays out very clearly that we need to have our conceptual and theoretical match our data capture mechanism or however we're collecting data. And that needs to also be harmonized with our statistical techniques. And this basic insight from um, Linda Collins was, uh, was to me really transformational in my own thinking because it, it, it said to me, you have to do a better job and make sure that all three of these things are aligned. And if they're not aligned, you know, be careful about the types of conclusions you're going to draw. And a lot of work that I see that is strong tries hard to make sure those are all, all synchronized, whereas research that I think um, overpromises and underdelivers tends to to not do that. That's not to say that we've got it figured out. There's tremendous amounts of questions related to what's the right timing, how should we be asking questions, should we be you know, sampling behavior, should we be asking people for their own perceptions, should we be asking other people for their own perceptions. You know, Those are all the details to be worked out, and I think reasonable people can hypothesize different things or disagree about what, what should be hypothesized. But the fundamental notion of getting all of these things in harmony, theory, data capture and uh, statistical model is, I think, fundamental for us moving forward in the field. And do you think that this type of research that we should be doing, do you think that this should also be more focused on this ideographic, so this level of processes within people? Or, or do you still think that we should be moving forward with both levels or more focused on the connection? Yeah, I, I think we should be focusing on both and also trying to do so together. I think one of the one of the reasons ideographic or personalized models of of psychology, personality, psychopathology have had such a hard time over the past century, even though they they're really compelling, um, is in part methodological. Uh, in the need to collect a lot of data on an individual so that you have enough time points to be able to develop a model for them. Um, but another part is that it's uh, Conceptually, it's almost nihilistic. If you say that there are, uh, that everyone is so unique as to have no generalizable principles, then it, that doesn't make you want to go very far in terms of finding something that would be similar to a general rule of physics, like, you know, how strong gravity is on Earth or something like that, that, that tends to be uh, a universal. And so I think that, that that nihilism coupled with the difficulty of the work has been a big limiting step. 
but that's changing. A, we can collect a lot of, of data. Uh, B, we now have this, the quantitative models and um, computing power to run lots of analyses on individuals, as well as people are conceptually thinking about how to bridge some of these gaps and look for commonalities among them. And you mentioned this nihilism, and I'm also wondering, what do you think has changed in, in researchers thinking that people have started to do this type of work more often, even uh, if, like you say, uh, there should also be this awareness that it, it is very personalized and therefore may not lead to any generalized big conclusions? Yeah, that's a good question. I think you can hold both in in mind and talk about talk about what is unique about the individual and at the same time what does the individual share with others. Uh, if you go back to Allport's writing in the 1930s, he lays these various issues out. There's some ways that we're all similar to others. There's some ways that make us relatively unique, and then there's some things that make us you know purely unique. And I think that the recognition that even though you might have an ideographic model for certain aspects of certain processes, it doesn't mean that they aren't maybe governed by similar rules or that there aren't going to be ways to relate that to a, another individual and so and, and look for individual differences. But now, not individual differences on just sort of a static level uh, or like a, a trait level, but at a more nuanced level at what's going on within the individual or possibly on a systemic level and how the individual is organized. So it, it can get pretty complex pretty quickly, but there's different layers of ideographics or personalization. You can imagine if you wanted to, to study individuals, you could you could make it entirely ideographic and ask the individual what are the important ways that they, you know, the important behaviors or how they think about things um, and frame them in their mind. And so that you might set up a, a study where you're going to ask them questions several times a day for many days in order to understand the ebb and flow of their behavior over time. And so the questions you could design for that individual could be perfectly tailored to them and so to the point where it becomes you know, only their understanding of things and, and it would be incomparable to anyone else because no one else would describe their behavior in the same way. So this would be something like fully ideographic. At the same time, you might be able to abstract it a little bit. And so if we were studying you, you might describe something that's that only you like to do and only you find fun, but we could abstract it a little bit and say, okay, that that is recreation. And so even though I would describe something completely different in my life, we might both understand that there were engaging in them for the same motivation of recreation. And this is just one example of, of how even if something were completely ideographic, we could talk about their abstracting it slightly and, and thinking about it in terms of what function it serves. And if it's a similar function, maybe that, that's a, a, a level at which we can start to see commonalities across individuals. And maybe this question has become irrelevant, I think, based on, on what you just described. But do you think that there is uh, a way for this ideographic approach to account for individual differences? Or do you think that it should just be complementary um, rather than be integrated in this approach? Well, I think the big... The big prize is integration, and and I think that we're going to fumble towards that, hopefully. But it, there's going to be some fumbles along the way, and you know I can see those in my own work. I, I find it extremely difficult to work with the ideographics and try to move up to the, the nomothetic. And sometimes I I 
get the impression that I'm not even sure if I'm looking in the right place. And so uh, I think we need to be humble and tolerate a fair amount of stumbling as we go through it. But I think that that's ultimately what we should be looking for. Sometimes I think that we're focusing, it's not clear whether we're, when we're talking about ideographics, whether if it's a surface level or deep level of understanding. So the example I just gave you was uh, going back to what you like to do for recreation and what I might like to do for recreation might be entirely idiosyncratic to us. Um, but the, the notion of recreation would be something that's common among us. Uh, we we talked about this notion of deep versus surface level ideographics in a, our annual review of clinical psychology paper that came out last year that I wrote with one of my graduate students, and we allowed for and and I and I think that this is a, a reasonable bet that there that some things really may be just more surface level, but at the deep level we may find basic processes. And these we may already know relatively well, things like reinforcement processes and that sort of thing. There may still be a room for individual differences in those in terms of sensitivity or how strongly we respond to certain cues or stimuli, but the, the general process may be relatively common across individuals. And from that standpoint, it may be interesting to know that you like to play tennis while rollerblading and I like to jump on pogo sticks while eating pies or something like that. But at the end of the day, these are both positively reinforced behaviors. By the same token, there may be similarities at the surface, but underneath there, there are there's differences below that. So the example that we give is related to alcohol use. And so someone may drink too much, but some individuals may do that for, for positive reinforcement reasons. They tend to do it in a convivial sense. They tend to do it when they're feeling good. They tend to enhance their experience by doing so. Whereas other individuals may do it because they are trying to remove negative affect. So it's negatively reinforcing. So they feel bad and, and they numb themselves with the alcohol. On the surface level behavior, these individuals may seem to be uh, very similar in that they're drinking more than they should, but underneath it, they're doing it for very different reasons. And so these types of uh, where the, the individual differences and where the unique aspects are manifesting, I think are going to be important to pay attention to. And and the fumbling that you mentioned, is that um, something that you see mainly in figuring out what is surface level and what is uh, a deeper level? No, I see it all over the place, uh, <laughs> to be honest. You know, right now it it seems pretty clear to me that people aren't exactly sure what to measure, how frequently to measure it, and which statistical model to link it up with. And so I think that there are there's a lot of great work uh, that's going on right now that's probably not going to lead anywhere or is going to probably lead us down some dead ends or, or not advance things a lot in the process. But this is okay. If you read about or watch movies about uh, the race to get to the moon or the space race in the 1950s uh, and in 1960s, you see that every time they shot a rocket and, and, it, and it blew up, you learn a lot about that. And, and that's still the case. There, there's uh, there's a lot of learning going on right now by by virtue of going through and designing studies that fail on some level. Related to this, yeah, what, what do you think are the biggest challenges up ahead? I feel like I've been talking about only in terms of challenges. Um, so what's left? You know, in our own in our own work, I think that uh, one some of the challenges that 
that we run into, and I think that these generalize to others, is recognizing that if you want to really understand an individual and their processes, it's probably best to study them in their own environment outside of the lab. And so when you send someone out into the field with some form of data collection device or devices um, or and, you know questionnaires, that sort of thing, you give up a lot of control and you're left wondering whether what you're capturing is all the important instances of behavior and thoughts and feelings. And so you can get around that somewhat by, you know, using a, a random sampling approach in an effort to try and, you know, sort of drop into their life repeatedly and hope that you're the sample of, of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that you get are representative of the individual. But there's a limit to how frequently you can do that in part because it's, um, it's taxing for the individual. And so one of the, one of the challenges there is to, to try to make good on the promise of studying someone in their own natural environment by collecting data in a way that's less obtrusive, but also has access to the richness of, of, you know, the individual's um, own cognition and experience. And, and this is very challenging. And so there's, there's different things that people are doing, trying to use passive sensing to, because that unburdens the individual. But when you do that, you give up a lot of fidelity. You, you gain a lot of temporal fidelity. You can sample things almost continuously for long periods of time. Uh, but you give up a lot of fidelity on, on the constructs that you're interested in. And there's this nice paper by David Moore and colleagues that talked about going from low-level features up to high-level features. And so now you're dealing with things that um, are almost meaningless by themselves. So some people, the one thing that people like to get a lot of now are, is actigraphy, so some form of act activity, which makes sense. Other things that people like to collect uh, are sort of very basic, low-level psychophysiology, like heart rate. But you know, the, the number of things that can raise your heart rate is, is virtually limitless from, you know, walking, from having a, an exciting thought, from being, uh, to, from seeing something that is scary. You know, it, there's no real one-to-one -one there. And if you think about the, the low level of features that you're sampling with passive sensing, although you're getting them continuously, they're often very ambiguous. That's not true of everything. Some things are, are quite interpretable. Like if you ever look at the data of GPS position from from collecting that, you can tell almost immediately when someone is home, in part because that's the, you know, that's the address they are at between 8 p.m. and 8 a.m. Um, every day. But on the whole, there's these there's these big trade-offs that we're busy dealing with right now. And, you know, hopefully over time, methodology will improve so that we don't have to make such big trade-offs. But right now, it's sort of uh, we're flip-flopping back and forth between burdensome data to collect for burdensome for the individual to data that's not burdensome but much more ambiguous and hopefully and you know over time we can resolve some of these technological challenges. Well, so I think those are focusing on the technological challenges, but I, I think also there's a um, there's conceptual issues related to how frequently do you want to sample. How, um, what should we be sampling in order to, to get a picture of the whole individual in ways that make sense? And I don't think that anyone has any particularly good answer to those right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering because this, I think this is an issue that is faced by broader psychology. I'm not sure if that's a good thing, if that makes it better for us in personality science 
than if it was just limited to us. Um, do you think this is especially an, a challenge that needs to be solved for moving the field forward in terms of uh, ideographic personality science or also more generally? I think more generally. I, you know, I, I think that ideographics now has a seat at the table in ways that it hasn't had, but it's still a relatively small group of people that are focusing on it. And I think that one thing that's really nice from, from personality researchers that are doing this type of work, but they're not the only people doing this work, but personality psychologists tend to think about understanding the whole individual and, and try to and are trying to link it back up to a broader model for individuals and how to understand how people relate to each other in, in a between person way. So I, I think I, when I see people doing this and in, in personality, there's an effort to do it in an integrative fashion in a way that that I think is is probably good in the long run. You asked whether I think that this is these challenges are are broader. I, I do see them as broader, in part because I see personality as largely the fundamental psychology that um, it, it seems to me to be the basis of psychology as a broader field, in part because um, it's an effort to understand the the individuals as the whole and not just parts of, of the individual. And, and I think that that's both what's limited personality in some ways from making some of the advances that other areas have, but it's also what's made it so strong and made what advances it has made as being much more compelling and useful than certain other areas. Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit grandiose, I suppose. When I think when you ask people what they think of in terms of psychology, uh, you know, the lay person on the street, I think they tend to think of what personality psychologists do. Who are people? How do they function generally? How do they relate to each other? You just mentioned the advances that we've made as a field. I'm wondering, what do you think are the biggest achievements or biggest advances that we've made? You tend to find them in uh, the big few models that I referenced a while ago. So one of them is that we've spent a lot of time on construct validity and not only just specific constructs, but we've fleshed out nomological nets. So I find that when I talk to personality-minded colleagues, they tend to have a much broader perspective on any given concept or variable that in, in psychological science more broadly, in part because they function with um, larger maps or nomological nets in their head about how things relate to each other. So understanding constellations of variables and how they relate to each other, uh, because one's interested in a broader model that tries to capture individuals more comprehensively, is um, is arguably, I think, the greatest strength in the field. And along with that has come a lot of attention to measurement, measurement development, and uh, construct validation, which you don't see in other areas as much anyway. Sounds pretty impressive if you list it like that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you're asking me to talk about what's impressive about it, I suppose. Yeah, but it's good to hear that there are some big achievements after you uh, felt like you've been talking about the challenges um, for most of the interview. As a final question, I was just wondering, what do you see as the biggest puzzles uh, in our fields? Well, I think there's a few of them. And I was recently thinking through trying to to work through one of these um, sort of meta theories or comprehensive models and thinking about what all do you need to have in one of these models to make it viable and really explain everything. And there's one particular publication that I always return to 
is uh, is one that actually doesn't get nearly as much attention, I don't think, but is uh, Tim Leary's book. So Timothy Leary, who eventually got kicked out of Harvard for engaging in, um, you know, questionable research practices uh, that largely involved giving, you know, undergraduates too much LSD or psilocybin at the time, which incidentally is interesting because now that's in vogue again. So that fits with what I'm about to, to say here. But But his book from 1957, which was called The Interpersonal Diagnosis of Personality, a functional theory and methodology for personality evaluation. In there, there are so many insights that have come to pass or come to become part of how we think about everything in, um, in psychological science, you know, 70 years down the line. And also there are things contained in there that are sort of at the cutting edge of the field right now. So some of the things that he talks about in there is the need to have a validated structural model um, that is uh, operation an operationalization of theory. And he ends up, uh, he and his colleagues at the Kaiser Group at California developed the interpersonal circumplex, uh, which is a very, uh, a very highly articulated structural model. Um, it's not something like, well, there's five broad domains that sort of kind of you know, are independent theoretically, but also tend to be pretty strongly correlated in real data. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a very specific associate set of associations here. Uh, in addition, he says that we need that uh, the same set of variables that we would use to define normality and psychopathology. Um, and so, uh, in, in, that's that's interesting because when you look at things like the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the model that psychiatry uses is completely different from the model that um, basic behavioral sciences uses. And, and that's not something you see in the, the rest of medicine, right? Like if you talk to a cell biologist and an oncologist, they have the same basic understanding of a cell. They don't shift models just because one's applied and one's not. And so that that was in there. He talked about things being along dimensions and organized dimensionally. But some of the other stuff that he talked about was the need to understand personality and its functioning at in a multiple layered way. So there he's focusing um, at the time is on observable behavior, um, self-concept, how other people perceive you, this sort of thing. They were they were a set of levels that are very typical for the the time he was working in, especially you know closely following a lot of the psychodynamic and psychoanalytic thinking of the early parts of the the 1900s. But these days, these are some of the major questions facing us right now is how do we pull what might be considered broad abstract traits, something like extroversion or some or like neuroticism, and pull them into their constituent parts to things like motivations, perceptions, um, overt behavior, that sort of thing, as well as maybe their neurobiological underpinnings and everything in between and how these all work together. And so this is something you see a lot in in the clinical area right now, where the National Institute of Mental Health in the U.S. is is really pushing people to try to understand things across layers of analysis. And one thing that's pretty clear is that they get they struggled with this because they said, well, these aren't levels that we're going to call these units of analysis because they realize that they they don't quite fit together hierarchically. Um, and some and they're largely different modalities. And there's they're sort of um, contingent on different assessment methodologies. And so 
there are folks working right now on, on uh, trying to pull these things all together, uh, but it's it's very, very difficult to get all the levels to align together. And so whether you're talking about, yeah, it, even even self-report versus other report don't align all that well. They, they, there's definitely agreement there, but there's also, it already highlights the fact that if you, different methodology gives you different answers. And so if you then switch to behavior, or even if it's self-report in the environment versus global self-report, if you're looking at physiology, if you're looking at functional neurobehavior, and so on and so forth, it's very difficult to, to integrate. But I think that if we want to have true explanatory functional models of personality, we need to figure out how to integrate all of these. But this was something Leary was talking about back in the 50s and saying that this was necessary, a necessary component of a personality theory. So that's where I see um, the big challenges today. Uh, that those, as well as some of the ones that we talked before about how to integrate across um, individuals in time. And it surprises me that he was thinking so clearly about it then um, and ultimately went in a different direction in his career. And I think the field probably suffered for it. But I think it would be good if more people read Leary's book and, and thought about the general things that he was grappling with, because I think that they were way before their time. Okay, sounds like a clear recommendation. Yeah, I told myself I was going to make that recommendation on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. from what I hear from you, it sounds like a very interesting work. Thank you so much for answering all of my questions. And thank you so much thank for being here today. Well, thank you for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. Here's the summary of some of EJP's latest articles. For this episode... I looked at papers published in the European Journal of Personality in 2020 to identify a few most popular themes among them. I chose three topics and I will illustrate each of them with two articles. Not surprisingly, one of the popular topics is personality trait change and its possible causes. For example, Aileen Graham and colleagues presented one of the largest ever studies on longitudinal personality trait change using data from over 60,000 participants from 16 samples and spanning pretty much all adulthood. They found linear declines in average consensuousness, extroversion and openness, and a U-shaped pattern of neuroticism with declines in earlier adulthood followed by slight increases in later life. It should be said, however, that the affect sizes were not large, so normative changes in personality appear to be quite modest, in fact. In a theoretical paper, Vipka Pladon and colleagues discussed an issue that puzzles most of personality researchers now. Why is it so hard to find any reliable predictors of personality trait change? I mean, many psychological theories, never mind lay theories, list tens of life experiences that are supposed to shape personality development, and yet solid empirical evidence is so scarce. The authors outlined several methodological limitations that may have prevented past studies from finding life experiences that contribute to personality trait change, and they propose an agenda for a new generation of studies. A good metaphor and a pun always help, so the authors call this new generation of studies LIWAS, or Life Experience Wide Association Studies, alluding to the popular technique for hunting genetic variants related to traits. GWAS, or Genome-Wide Association Studies. Another popular topic is prediction and machine learning. 
This often means creating a machine learning model based on a set of variables that collectively capture as much variance about another variable as possible, so that the predictions of the model can be used as a proxy for the predicted variable when it cannot be measured directly. For example, it is currently very popular to use the digital footprints that people leave behind, for example their social media behavior or their smartphone use, and create the best possible predictions for self-reported personality traits from these footprints. Eventually, this may lead to researchers being able to infer people's personality traits only from the traces that they leave behind. Obviously, this may have numerous practical applications, some of which may be good and some of which may also pose ethical challenges. In fact, the European Journal of Personality even had a special issue in 2020 that was largely devoted to such topics. For example, in one of the papers in this special issue, Clement Stahl and colleagues overviewed the predictive research and discussed the main principles of machine learning and creating prediction models for personality traits from digital footprints. In another article, Ryan Boyd and colleagues discussed the practical and eth ethical issues related to this research. I think that personality researchers and those in any way connected to personality research or assessment are best advised to pay very close attention to these topics. It is inevitable that the role of machine learning and prediction in personality research and assessment will only grow in the future as more and more data for such modeling becomes available and the models become ever more accurate. So if this sounds interesting to you, please have a look at the September-October issue of the European Journal of Personality. The third topic that is currently subject to very active research is anything related to variations within individuals in their personality over time and across situations. Of course, recent technological advances that make collecting in situ personality data and extensive time series of these data have given a great boost to this work. The units of such research are often called personality states. These are expressions of personality which people can fluctuate even over very short time spans, like ours. To some, of course, the concept of personality states may seem puzzling. After all, isn't personality about something stable in people and something in which people differ from others? rather than something that is always in flux and in which people differ from themselves. In one paper, Kai Horstmann and Matthias Ziegler try to offer a rigorous definition of personality states and discuss ways of measuring them. Given the popularity of studying personality variation within people or personality states, I think there is a great demand for such work. In another paper, Joanna Sosnowska and colleagues propose a general dynamic model of personality that combines the seemingly different things into a single model, personality states in which people vary from themselves all the time, and personality traits in which people are rel relatively stable but differ from other people. And this is not just a verbal model, but a mathematical model that can be fitted to suitable data. In the model, Personality traits are modeled as the kinds of personality states towards which people always tend to gravitate, the so-called attractor states, whereas time-specific personality states are variations around these attractor states. 
The third component of their model refers to the strength with which people are, tend to be pulled back towards their attractor states, and people can differ in the strength too. In other words, some people tend to be more consistent in how they express their personality, and some a bit more all over the place. And importantly, now we can actually build mathematical models to describe these processes all in one go.